Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Today on Backroom Politics, the rebirth of Hillary Clinton and her prospects for a White House run in 2016. Does she run? Can she win? We talk with the author of HRC, Secrets, and the Rebirth of Hillary Clinton, Bloomberg's Jonathan Allen. Also, this week marks the 50th anniversary of the Civil Rights Act as signed by President Johnson. How far have we come in 50 years, and what does the next 50 years look like? With the Senate's vote to publicly release the CIA's interrogation reports, is America ready for what's inside? And will this push for transparency in our intel community? Finally, how many government agencies does it take to screw in a light bulb? The GAO has a response to that. This, and tell me a story today on Backroom Politics. Live from Shelley's Back Room. 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. which means it's time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Joining me as they do every Tuesday to my left, he is the former congressman representing the 2nd Congressional District of Washington State. He is the Honorable Congressman Al Swift. Hello, Al. Hello, Justin. And to my 11 o'clock across the table, he is the former Vice President of Government Affairs for the National Broadcasting Corporation, former floor chief for then Congressman Gerald R. Ford. He is the Honorable Bob Hines. Hi, Bob. Hi, Justin. Glad to be here. And to my one o'clock across the table, he is the former Undersecretary of Commerce for International Affairs. He is a longtime Senate staffer, Washington Insider, and a very handsome and factual fellow from the Stimson Center. He is the Honorable Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hello, Justin. Guys. To my right, ironically, he is the former executive director of the Democratic Party of the great state of Maryland. He is the longtime Washington Insider, Carl Tubin. Hello, Carl. Hello, Justin. And, and it's a beautiful day here in Washington. It is a beautiful day here. The cherry blossoms are supposed to be hitting their peak this week, but as the cherry blossoms come out, uh, so do the guests. Uh, joining us, expected to join us today, is Bloomberg's chief White House correspondent and author of HRC, State Secrets, and the rebirth of Hillary Clinton, Bloomberg's Jonathan Allen will be joining us during the show. But first, we want to get to a little bit of a commemorative portion of the show. Uh, this, this week is actually a very big week uh, in, in America's history. This week marks the 50th anniversary of the, of the signature of the Civil Rights Act by then-President Lyndon Baines Johnson. Uh, the Civil Rights Act was a, a hugely contested uh, piece of legislation. Uh, no question, Lyndon Johnson made it a point of, of his agenda throughout his term as president. 
And it set the stage for what we believe would be, and what we hope has been, the stage for increasing civil rights on racial, on sexual, uh, uh, sexual preference, uh, gender. We hope that it's covered a large area. But the significance of the Civil Rights Act, I'm going to start with you, Congressman Al. Uh, you were around the media during the time, 50 years ago, when this came out. Uh, what was that time like, at least in your view, when pre-Civil Rights Act? What were you seeing during that time? During pre-Civil Rights Act, uh, it, it was pretty deplorable. Uh, <clears throat> you'd, you'd go to a party and uh, somebody would start telling jokes, and then somebody would tell a racist joke, and then pretty soon the racist jokes would flow, and uh, all good liberals were supposed to stand up and denounce this, which is, one, a very hard thing to do, and it rarely happened. Uh, but it was it was pretty deplorable. I remember when I came back to Washington D.C. in 1965, and went home. Somebody said, "Oh, it's Chocolate City. How how is it back there? You know, is it pretty bad?" And I said, "No, it's not. You know, uh, yes, there's it's predominantly black people. I think you said Negroes at the time, but uh, you know." They do their thing, and, and it's, it's fine. They act like normal people. You know, Bob, it was hard for people to believe, and they still had their old prejudices. Uh, Bob Hines, you know, Lyndon Baines Johnson, a, a Democrat, but a Texas Yellow Dog Democrat, took a lot of flack from his own home state and a lot of people in his delegation for pushing this forward uh, the way he did. He made this a key priority in his term as president and, and made no made no uh, made no false pretenses about the fact that he was going to the Hill and he was going to use every ounce of strength he had, and he had a lot of strength back then. Absolutely, and it was we, we, we have to remind ourselves that uh, the South was very, very much at that point democratic, and there were a, an awful lot of Southerners down there, obviously, who didn't like it at all, and I think it's it's. I think Johnson was very strong, very brave, and I think he did exactly the right thing. And it was one of the it was one of the best pieces of legislation in a long time. And we ought to talk about as we go as we continue this conversation. We ought to be talking about the way it got done because it was a very very tricky piece of legislation, and it was extremely bipartisan. And I think it was, and that's that's correct. But I think it is also true that Lyndon Johnson knew he was giving away the South Did, yes. to the Republican Party. Yes. Alan Moore, you know... When, you know something? I'm not so sure it was a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> but Alan Moore, you know, when we talk about LBJ and the Civil Rights Act, there are some academics who studied LBJ who, who seem to think that it was... He put so much effort into passing the Civil Rights Act that he knew he may not get his base to re-elect him or have a strong showing in any re-election process that he had going forward. Is, is there accuracy to that? You know, we, we, we'll never know here. Um, I, I think that, that you know, Johnson grew up poor. Um, he had some feeling about prejudice in the country uh, on an economic basis, but, but he, was, he grew up in a world where there was an enormous amount of racial prejudice. Um, 
and it's, it's hard to know exactly how he felt about all of that, but one has to assume that he didn't think it was great for the country uh, in, the six, in the 50s, 60s, and, and beyond. He was remarkably aware of the long-term political ramifications of this. I mean, he was quoted as saying to people, privately, because he, not to all of his old buddies from the South, you know, we've, we've probably lost the South or the Democratic Party for a, a generation or more, but, but that's, that's why one has to give him, an, a, you know, sort of a, a Profiles and Courage Award for taking that on, using his political capital to achieve something that was very divisive, especially in, in the part of the country where, it, where his party was particularly strong, um, but he also knew that it was something that was coming, and it needed to come, and, uh, and, and, and President Kennedy obviously had, had, uh, uh, had made it a, a, a high priority of his without the, without the insider's knowledge, without the uh, arm-twisting uh, ability. And Johnson, for reasons that, uh, that has probably been well documented, I'm not an expert on it, just decided let's make this happen and was convinced as a great vote counter that it could happen and he had some key Republicans who, w without whom none of this would have occurred. Um, and, uh, and then we changed the law and we're still trying to figure out how to embrace uh, and, and uh, inculcate into our society all that the law was intended to do. It's one thing to change the law, it's another thing to change human behavior and, uh, and we're still we're working on uh, we're still working on that, but we've made enormous progress. Now, Carl Tubin, this is about the time also when you were the executive director of the Democratic Party in Maryland. Uh, during that time, Maryland wasn't exactly the most integrated state at that time. It had a lot of Southern influences going. Uh, as a Democrat and as a leader of the party at that time, was there a lot of pressure on? LBJ from a southern-leaning state to maybe not make this such a top priority? First of all, I think the members of the, of the delegation at that time were middle-of-the-road liberal. Uh, we had a, I think we had the whole house, maybe except Western Maryland, although we, we had Western Maryland. We might have had every member of the house. But... Uh, and, and, you know, there was questions that were raised uh, all over the place. But I, that, I think I want to throw on one thing. He came from the Hill Country. He came to Congress. He voted against every civil rights bill that was brought up in, until one, when he was about to go into the Senate or went into the Senate. And when he, when he ascended the presidency, I... I kept thinking and reading his story and thinking and, and how he matured from a congressman who followed the votes of Franklin Roosevelt all the way down the line <clears throat> to a senator, and he became then uh, majority leader, and he was then representing the whole country, and then vice president, <clears throat> where he was very unhappy, as we all know. And, and then he, he assumes the presidency. And he had had very long conversations with Kennedy, and Kennedy was really pushing to get a civil rights bill written and passed. This was one of his big aims. And Johnson came in and did it. And I remember listening to uh, 
the, the Johnson tapes where he spoke to Richard Russell and he spoke to uh, the Mississippi uh, uh, <clears throat> senators and really pulled them and really pushed them. Russell didn't want to hear anything of it. And he kept after them and got his Republican friends and got the bill passed. But, uh, Congressman Al, you had a thought. My thought is that when you talk about the civil rights thing, you tend to either give all the credit to Martin Luther King or you give all the credit to LBJ because they were they, they were played different roles. I don't happen to believe either one of them could have done it alone. I think it was the Martin Luther King that developed the awareness, the public awareness of uh, of the whole issue that set it up, teed it up, along with, along with, uh, of course, the death of JFK, which I think helped tee it up. Yeah. And then, and then Johnson knew what to do with the teed up golf ball. And uh, if they hadn't come and come in the order they did, we might still be back in 1965. Well, joining us right now in studio, we are very lucky to have a good friend of the show, great reporter, great political contributor here to the media. Joining us now is Jonathan Allen, Chief White House Correspondent for Bloomberg and uh, the author of HRC, State Secrets and the Rebirth of Hillary Clinton, joining us for the show. We're very Jonathan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Happy to be here. And I just want, I had to jump in on that Maryland question because... Uh, Johnson said he was signing away the South forever, and if, if my memory serves, Maryland was one of the first places you saw that with Spiro Agnew winning the governorship in 1966, if I'm not mistaken, because the Democratic Party divided so badly. Carl you know, Tubman? There, there was a big reason why that happened. <clears throat> we had a uh, seven, six or seven person primary, and a fellow by the name of um, senior moment, Carl. Senior moment. There we go. Some guy. Some guy. He came in. He came in. He was a. Uh, he uh, was a. He built roads, paved roads, and uh, he had run for Senate. And he came in, and he was riding the anti-civil rights cart. And he his his um, his his slogan was. <clears throat> um, this is your home protected. I mean, it was absolutely... Your home is your castle. Your castle protected. Right. And, and because it was such a large primary, you had Carlton Sickles, you had Tom Finan, you had a, a, a fellow by the name of Miles, it was with one of the big law firms, lived on the Eastern Shore, and several others. And because of that, he wins. And that's why we lost Maryland. But we also had... <clears throat> Before that, we had had some Republican senators who ran against more liberal Democrats. Tidings lost to uh, Butler or, or, or one of the other ones. John Allen. I was just going to say, once the once the uh, uh, the anti civil rights guy wins the primary, all the liberals voted for Spiro Agnew. That's right. They went jumped on the. I mean, I think Maryland. I, I, nowhere could have seen it faster. The Voting Rights Act is 1965. <laughs> There in Maryland, 1966, I believe also the same year that Steny Hoyer uh, was first elected to the state senate in 66. Uh, it was either that or two years before. Yeah. Right. But Bob Hines, you had a comment. Yeah. Um, I want to talk a little bit about two people who I think were uh, 
Absolutely. Without their help, uh, the Civil Rights Act would not have passed. Number one was the minority leader in the Senate, Everett Dirksen. He was an absolutely, absolutely gung-ho to make this happen. In those days, you know, we really did get some really good bipartisan work. And this is one of the most best examples I've ever seen. Secondly, a guy whose name nobody ever knows, Bill McCullough from Piqua, Ohio, senior Republican on the House Judiciary Committee, if he had not been able to do what he did with his members there and working with, with the leadership, with, with uh, I guess it was Halleck, I guess, in those days. No, I take it back. It was Jerry Ford, but we just started. Uh, but uh, those two guys moved enough Republicans to make it happen. And I think that and Johnson was very generous in saying that, just, just the way I just said. Those guys made it possible for the Republicans to move on that bill, and otherwise it wouldn't have passed. Call and to thank me. God that it did pass. When you talk about McCullough, <coughs> Jackie, Jack, after the Civil Rights Bill was passed, Jackie Kennedy wrote him a personal note thanking him yeah. and saying how much that uh, John Kennedy would have appreciated all the work that he did with him and going forward. Well, he really worked on it for a year on it. And, and, and in, in the Senate, if it hadn't been for Dirksen, I'm not sure what would have happened because but, he was so strong on it. But, Alan Moore, when, when we look at the result of the Civil Rights Act and we look at where we are 50 years later, have we really changed the thought process and how America views civil rights across the board, or do we still have a long way to go? Yes, and I mean, yes and yes. We, we have changed enormously. The, the, the underlying base of legal rights uh, has spread out and then been expanded, um, and, uh, and that was critically important. And then the question is, how do you make sure that those rights are recognized and enforced? That is a process that is still underway. Having said that, there, there are, <laughs> you, you don't just pass a law with whatever intentions that's highly divisive, and then everybody embraces it and says, great, okay, now there's a new normal. The new normal is still in evolution. It, it, I, uh, I have a wife, uh, a late wife, uh, who was from the South, and we would go visit in the South, uh, uh, her, her relatives and friends, um, not that many years ago. And I would be, because I grew up in Southern California, a little bit shocked at some of the conversation that would occur by not horrible, evil people, but people who grew up in a different culture, a different place, a different time, um, and uh, the way they talked reflected in some ways the way they thought, and it was not always all that kindly or charitable towards uh, African Americans. But it too was evolving, and younger people coming up uh, were, were, were learning at a different time and a different place. I see real parallels with uh, the whole gay marriage issue, where older folks feel one way, younger people feel a new way. And, and, uh, and, and we, you know, I don't mean to pick on the South because there was an enormous amount of racism in the North, still is, school busing, integrated schools, um, uh, many challenges that, that, that haven't gone away, de facto segregation in, in many of our inner cities. But gosh, we have come very, very far. We, we still have 
leftover elements of the racism, and there's a lot of there's a lot of economic um, uh, uh, discrimination that that correlated with race, which we're still wrestling with. You know, it, you know, hearing you talk, Alan, about you know being from Southern California and then going to the South, I, it, it reminds me as somebody who grew up in New England. Uh, you know, you look at even today, Boston is a very segregated city, and it's it's almost by choice, regardless of the Civil Rights Act. Then, you know, somebody who comes from a very liberal state like Massachusetts, from a very uh, moderately liberal family from New York and New Jersey, and then moving down to Georgia and Florida and seeing the 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 lack of understanding of civil rights down there, it, it does blow my mind, but it, it seems that it's been passed down generationally rather than people being educated saying, look, this, you know, every man has equal right to exist. Congressman Al. I, I think that's right. But I, I think it's too bad that we don't have a black person or two in this conversation. Because I remember having a conversation at the bar here, right. here at Shelley's up at the bar with a guy that I met here and we had good conversations a lot of the time. He was a, he was a black guy. And uh, I remember saying, well, but we've certainly made a great deal of progress since then. And he said, you really think so? Yes. And I mean, one he, of he was not a radical, you know. And so... From, certainly from a white standpoint, we've made tremendous steps. But perhaps if you're uh, an African-American, you see it a little differently. No, I agree with that. I absolutely well, agree with that. And, and, the, and there are age differences among African-Americans as well as among yeah. white yeah. Americans yeah. and Hispanics and, and, and Asians. I mean, this, this culture takes time for, for all races yes. to, to change. Well, this is obviously something that we want our, you know, our listenership and, and all Americans should take an eye, take a few minutes, and, and look back at what has been and where we've come. We still have a long way to go. We're going to be talking with uh, Joe Williams here in the next few weeks about this subject in particular as it relates to D.C. politics and politics as a whole nationwide. So we're going to have a, a good civil rights leader, community activist joining us here in the next couple of weeks. Bob Hines, last thought. Uh, this isn't just a civil rights thought, I thought, but think about it. Back in the 60s, on an issue that is as difficult as, as civil rights is, the Congress was able to do something. Look at today. We can't even get a budget passed. Do you think that today's Congress could have passed the Civil no, Rights Act? No, today's Congress couldn't, can't, do, can't do anything. It's really, it's really terrible. But if you, you look back, I don't know if it's, if, if it's what it is, but the leadership then was stronger, I think. Uh, I think there were more guys and gals in the Congress who looked beyond their next election. I'm not sure about that. But in my view, whatever it is that was different then in the, in the ethos around the Congress has been lost. And by God, that's one of the biggest problems in our Congress today. Yeah, no, that's a great point. That's a great point. Uh, when we come back, we've got Jonathan Allen here at the table. We're going to talk about his book, HRC, State Secrets and the Rebirth of Hillary Clinton, the number six bestseller on the New York Times bestseller list on fiction. Bestseller and moving, uh, hopefully moving up again. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to talk to the Bloomberg's Jonathan Allen when we come back. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom. By the way, 
you can text us uh, or you can tweet us questions for any topic that we have today at Backroom Politics, or you can call toll free and join the discussion, 877-662-3713. And of course, you can email me, Justin, at backroompolitics.org with your questions. This is Backroom Politics on Blog Talk Radio. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. Wow, a little bit of Fats Waller, Lulu back in town, and I, I tell you, when I am back in town, or when any of my friends are back in town, or heck, when we're living here in town, we usually find ourselves down at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., right across from the National Press Club. Why do we come here? Well, they've got the city's best cigar menu the most diversified with some of the best-known brands and some that you might even know, but you might want to give it a try. Everything from Arturo Fuentes down to Zeno. You can go all the way from your $9 little petite girly flavored cigars all the way up to the Opus X Lost City. They have a cigar for everybody, mild, medium, strong, heavy. However you want to smoke it, it's available here at Shelly's Back Room. Come in, have Bob, Na, or any one of the girls show you what the right cigar might be for your taste that evening. Again, Shelly's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. As Bob likes to put it, it is definitely the place to be. You can tell the mailman not to call I ain't coming home until the fall And again, I might not get back home at all Lula's back in town Capital Washington, D.C. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of, Backroom Politics on Blog Talk Radio. Hey, joining us again, as we mentioned before, he is the White House Chief Correspondent for Bloomberg Media. He is the author of a great book, HRC, the Rebirth, or State Secrets and the Rebirth of Hillary Clinton. He is the author, best-selling author, Jonathan Allen. Jonathan, again, jo- thanks for joining us for the show. Hooray, Yay! Hooray. Hooray. Fantastic. My, uh, my pleasure. I, uh, I I came on for you, Josh. Oh, thank you, John. I appreciate that, that, I mean, the rest of you as well. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there it goes. Hey, John, um, number six on the New York Times bestseller list. Let's get some of this stuff out of the way. Uh, Alan was asking, how long did you work on this book? I, I know personally from our discussions, you worked on it for a little bit, but how long did it take you to get this book 
ready for prime time. It was, uh, so I had a co-author, Amy Parnes. We worked together mm-hmm. uh, for uh, about 13 months start to finish. Uh, it took another couple months for the, you know, the printer to run off the copies and send them out and everything. But it was basically a 13-month project. It, one of the questions I've heard about the book is because there's a lot of great information, a lot of great insight that, that, are, that is in the book. But one of the things is, how much access did the Clinton camp give you? It, it, it seems, from my view, it was unprecedented. They just opened up the kimono. Yeah, they typically don't uh, talk to authors a lot, and you know, it's the same set of like four or five people that will will talk to authors that are in the Clinton camp. We uh, we talked to more than 200 sources overall. Some of them were uh, enemies of her. Some of them were disgruntled Clinton people, but a good number of them were actually uh, people in the inner circle. Uh, and uh, you know. There are a lot of fresh quotes from Hillary Clinton in this book that you haven't seen anywhere else. Um, and I can't say whether we talked to her or not, but I can tell you that there are a lot of fresh quotes from Hillary Clinton that are in this book that you will find nowhere else. What's the biggest surprise? I was about to ask you if you had any time with her, and I think we just got the answer. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, what, what surprised you most about going through the book and writing the book and, and dealing with her enemies and her allies in getting this put together. I think what, what, what I was surprised the most by is the number of people who uh, are political adversaries of her, uh, who will go out on television and, and tear her down, who will also tell you at the same time they respect her work ethic, they like working with her. I mean, I was, I was really surprised by that, particularly because in this time in politics, uh, you know, we've been talking about that around the table, and, and I know you talked about it a lot on the show, We've got this dysfunctional era where the members don't know each other and the political players in Washington don't spend much time with each other. She makes a huge effort to do that. And even though people know that they're being worked, you know, they know that there's a political end to what she's doing, they seem to appreciate that she does reach out, that she does the little things, the sort of protocol things, uh, sends out the thank you notes uh, to people, invites them to, to things that they should be invited to. Um, you know, she, one example is David Petraeus, the general... Uh, who, um, who had become Central Commander Chief, Central Command Chief, uh, in uh, late 2008. Right. And before that, she had basically uh, questioned his integrity in a, in a hearing, an Armed Services Committee hearing, where he had given a rosy assessment, uh, a good assessment of what was going on with the surge in Iraq. Right. And at the time, it was a terrible uh, thing for a Democrat to admit in a presidential campaign that the, that the surge seemed to be working. And she called him out on it, basically said, you know, I don't believe... I'd have to suspend my disbelief in order to believe what you're telling me. So they had this bad interaction, and then he's going to be Central Command Chief, uh, and and she's going to be Secretary of State. She invites him over to her house uh, on Whitehaven Street here right. in Washington, and uh, invites him in for a bottle of wine, just a social bottle of wine, and then says at the end of the night, "Look, uh, Richard Holbrook, the diplomat, is coming over tomorrow night uh, to have have a drink with me, and uh, I'd like you to come back." So they come. Petraeus comes back the next night, two nights in a row at Hillary Clinton's house, having wine, uh, just meeting Holbrook, you know, who's going to be one of her top uh, advisors at state. And you know, Petraeus's reaction to this is, I know she's trying to get back in my good graces. I understand the political imperative for her heading into a new administration. I've got a lot of power in my new job, and he appreciates it anyway. Right. Really? Absolutely. With, you know, the title of your book. Uh, state secrets and the rebirth of Hillary Clinton. The thing that struck me is the rebirth of Hillary Clinton. It, it sounds to me 
that, as many people thought, after she had left the White House before her election into the Senate, that she was, in fact, just going to be a political rainmaker with her husband, stay in the shadows. Was, was this her decision? Was she recruited to run for Senate in New York, or how did that transgression go? You would have a hard time uh, getting her to concede anything other than the idea that she was drafted in this by, into this by New Yorkers who were clamoring for her to be their senator, even though she'd never lived there. Uh, the truth of the matter is she wanted to run for the Senate. Uh, this was an opportunity. Uh, there was some precedent for it, which made it a little easier in terms of Bobby Kennedy having done the same thing in the 60s, moving to New York and, and running for Senate. Um, but this is definitely, I mean, it's definitely her ambition. This is not, never ever confuse Hillary Clinton for somebody who lacks ambition, lacks political drive, lacks a desire to uh, attain power. And, you know, I would argue, like most people who seek power, she believes that what she brings to the job that she's seeking is better than that that other than, than what other people bring. Is, is her is her desire for power that strong? Does it is that what drove her into accepting the appointment as Secretary of State by Obama? That was her way of maintaining power. I think it's a complicated decision, um, and with like all complicated decisions, you sort of line up the pros and the cons, and if the pros heavily outweigh the cons, you, you do it. So, I, I mean, it's hard to attribute it to one thing. When you ask her, the answer is, my president or the president-elect at the time asked me to serve my country. And that's the, of the list of pros, that's the nice one, that's the great public consumption one. Uh, I could also argue that this uh, puts her in another category in terms of uh, the height of her political ascent. Uh, as Secretary of State, that's better than being a senator. Um, it, uh, but I w And I would also say, once he asked her and it became public, the potential for her to do damage to him by saying no, and thereby damage herself, that is to say, if she says no to the president-elect, and all the Democrats know she's done that, uh, that she was asked and she said no and it hurts him, she's never going to be able to run for president again. She looks like she, she stalked off with her ball, you know, all sullen and, and angry. <laughs> As a result, you know, or, or the, you know by, the, by the opposite token, she says yes and goes to work for this guy that, you know, from her perspective, I think skipped the line and beat her. And, I, you know, people look at that and go, that's a hard thing to do. You know, if you, if you were vying, a lot of people are vying for a job internally at their office or whatever. They don't get that top job. They move on. They go to another company. You know, they, they don't go and sit in the, you know, sit in the office and, uh, and go to the same meetings and, uh, and, and you know, so, suddenly start serving that, that other person. I mean, that the... The perception of loyalty in that, I think, is extremely strong for her. I think it's the reason that she's much better positioned running in 2016 as a frontrunner, uh, at least for the Democratic nomination, than she was in 2008. Because people like to make that parallel. She was way ahead in 2008, and she got taken out from behind. Why wouldn't the same thing happen in 2016? And who knows, it might. But I think she's much better positioned now, because I think the whole of the Democratic Party sees her as loyal. So would that have been the first time that Obama led from behind? <laughs> okay. No comment. <laughs> uh, Jonathan, when when we when we look at the transition of Hillary Clinton, the first lady, Hillary Clinton, the senator, then the secretary of state, uh, this, foreign affairs is obviously something high on her radar. She felt that she brought that expertise to Foggy Bottom and the folks in the State Department. Is she viewed as a, sex, a successful? Secretary of State in the eyes of those who worked for her as career bureaucrats in the State Department? I mean, she, 
she's not going to go down in history as one of the most important secretaries of state in the United States history, other than you know the, the, the footnote of having been a former first lady who was secretary of state. She's not Thomas Jefferson as secretary of state, or, or even Henry Kissinger, which is a, uh, you know, we could argue all day about Kissinger, about positive, negative, whatever, but right. it's not, not that type of a force. In terms of the people at the State Department, uh, we talked to people up and down the ranks. They loved her. Uh, not everybody, but I mean, right. by and large, she was very well received for a couple of reasons. Coming out of uh, out of the Bush administration, the United States was perceived not not badly not only by its enemies, but in a lot of cases by its friends in foreign countries. That is to say, the, the alliances that were used to go into Iraq and to sustain Afghanistan uh, were tested. A lot of Europe was upset with us. Um, and I think that diplomats had to defend, wherever they were in the world, had to defend what the United States was doing. I think they looked at her coming in as a pretty high-profile person, uh, somebody with a lot, of, uh, a lot of gravitas within the administration, somebody who could build the United States reputation back a little bit abroad, and at the same time, have a little more sway for the State Department. You know, diplomacy was not uh, necessarily the first act of the, of the Bush administration. Um, it wasn't what it was associated with. Uh, Secretaries of State and the State Department tend to be pretty weak in our national security apparatus. Uh, at least as an advisor and a counselor to the president, I think she brought back some strength to the State Department uh, over the years that she was, was in there. Does, does one attribute that to the fact that she put on the most miles on a 757 out of Andrews, literally going country to country, no matter how significant or insignificant the country was, she was making the global tour? I think part of it is that, uh, you know, other countries, when, when an American arrives on the ground, they judge how we feel about them and how, we, how much we respect them by the person that we send. So Japan, for instance, they always want somebody who's really well-known here, who's really important in the United States. Uh, uh, you know, Mansfield was an, an, an ambassador to Japan. Tom Foley was an ambassador to Japan. Howard Caroline Baker. Kennedy, I'm sorry. Howard, Howard, Baker. Howard Baker, Baker was an ambassador to Japan. So, Walter Mondale. Walter Mondale was, so, you know, and, but, that's, but every country feels that way. They want, to sh they want to see the respect that the United States has for them by the person they send. Hillary Clinton is famous around the world. Like or love or hate or, you know, dislike or whatever, she's famous and it's a certain sign of respect to send her to places. Uh, which I think has a small impact. But the bigger thing, I think, is uh, just internally, uh, other than Barack Obama within his administration, she's the only one with a constituency in the United States. I mean, a, a political constituency. Interesting. And a serious political constituency. How many times during... Even more so than Joe Biden. Even more so than Joe Biden. <laughs> so, <laughs> and Harry Reid. <laughs> so, right, I mean, so the way, that, the way that we looked at it in the book is when... You know, I don't know how many times this happened during the, during the Obama first term, but it happened a lot. Some bad thing would happen, and people would say, oh, well, what if Hillary Clinton was president? You know, whether it was Democrats or Republicans or somebody making trouble, it would be like, what if Hillary Clinton was president? I think she was powerful within the administration, influential within the administration, because she took her political constituency and showed loyalty to Obama. There weren't places where she took a position opposite of him in any public way or even within the internal councils in a way that can be repeated outside. So you never saw daylight between them. And what, it, what, what that did is it helped reinforce Obama in a place where she could have done the opposite, where she really could have hurt him by uh, resigning, by, by uh, just coming out against what he was doing within the party. How, there's always been speculation about how much influence she had with Obama and 
the folks inside the White House and just the interpersonal relationship between the two. Was it strong? Was it just social, a employee-employer type situation? It grew. Uh, when she first got in there, uh, nobody in the White House trusted anybody in the State Department and vice versa. Um, they weren't friends. They didn't go out on social outings. They didn't summer in the Hamptons together. And by the way, they don't do that now. <laughs> they're, just, they're not like best friends. They should never be confused that way. But I think one of the things she did early on is she lashed herself to Bob Gates and David Petraeus and some others in the uh, moderates, Republicans, conservative Democrats in the administration in that sphere uh, and ended up um, elevating herself a little bit. Uh, I think the president was able to observe her some, was able to see her as a serious person. You know, a lot of people think of Barack Obama as this big liberal, but on national security policy, he's actually been pretty centrist. Um, you know, there, there have been times where he has been very quick to use the, the war tools of the United States, whether it's this loan policy or going into Libya um, or, uh, you know, or the Afghan surge, which I think a lot of people didn't think he was going to do. Um, and by the way, this is not popular within the Democratic Party, but I think Hillary Clinton showed herself, A, to be very serious early on, and B, over time, like I was saying, to be pretty loyal. Over time, she gained influence in the administration to the point where she started opposing some of those people she had lashed herself to early on. Gates uh, is a prime example. Um, he was against the Biden raid. Uh, he was against the Libya intervention, uh, and I think a lot of Democrats were also <laughs> against it for that matter. Right. Um, but there were. But she felt more and more comfortable giving the president advice uh, that was her own. Uh, and there, I. It's very. There are very few issues where you can see a situation where she was in a different place than the president ended up. Now, whether that's because she perceived where he was going and chose to be there, or whether she influenced him to get to the spot that he got to, I think probably depends on the issue. But very, very close together. On, on Alan Moore, you had a question for John yeah, and Alan. Well, yeah, yeah, I was probably a reflection. You, you know her obviously way better than me. I knew her some, or I know her some from from the the, the Senate and so on. And and when I think about her, I don't think about her being driven by power per se, by any single thing, not that you were saying so, but when she was faced with this question, do I go be Secretary of State or not, um, and I'm guessing there would have been a way for her not to do that, send the signals early, um, the, the, the thing is, people who are in politics, Al being the best example, but some of the rest of us who devoted a lot of our lives to, to public service are driven by a whole uh, cluster of, of motives, one of which is to serve. Yes, there's some visibility, there's some power, maybe you can accumulate a few assets, but you're not driven by the money. Um, it, and and my, my, my guess is that she had observed up close her husband, his cabinet, people around him, thinking, I can do this. And then she was in the Senate thinking, I can do this. And then at one point, confronted with this question, do I, do, I, do I stay in the Senate or do I take this opportunity to go, to, to go uh, be Secretary of State? I like the sound of that when I consider everything on the plate better than staying in the Senate. Whether or not she runs for president, it was a very good job, a very worthy job, a, a job that... that, 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 that I'm guessing she decided to do for a cluster of reasons, not just to accumulate prestige or power or set herself up for, uh, for running. Jonathan Allen. Later. 
I should add, uh, and I think I said this before, you make the list of pros and cons, and her first pro would be to serve. Right. right. But this is, that is something that is a motivator. I mean, she's a, she's a, a Wesleyan Methodist. Uh, it's a, you know, sort of a core belief uh, in, in taking what you have and trying to give back. Like that's, so, I mean, I, I firmly believe that that is part of her calculation in taking it and part of her motivation in everything that she does. Um, but I also... Uh, and, and I should also say, when you asked about whether uh, she was a good Secretary of State, um, and I said, you know, I kind of flippantly said she's not Thomas Jefferson. I should also point out that there are very few people that work with her or work in the foreign policy establishment that don't think she was an incredibly competent Secretary of State, uh, which doesn't sound like a, a bumper sticker, um, you know, for a campaign. But it is incredibly important. It's a 70,000-person organization, if you throw USAID in there, and they're flung all across the world. This is one of the most, most difficult organizations to manage within the U.S. government. Um, and, and part of the reason for that is you've got 15,000 uh, foreign service officers, all of whom are very well-trained uh, and educated and well-trained at frustrating uh, other governments or helping other governments when they want. One of the things you have to do as a manager is get them in on your program. Was she more of a diplomat than a manager, or was she equally such? I think she was, I think she, I think she was more of a diplomat than a manager. I think the people she chose at the State Department, uh, in contrast with the people she had working on her campaign in 2008, were competent managers. That is to say, the day-to-day -day operations of the State Department were run by other people, but she brought in very competent people to do that. Carl, too, a question for Jonathan Allen. Yeah, I got to know her very well in uh, the years that I worked for, for Pamela Harriman, and uh, both the president and, and the first lady and the senator. But when, when she went around on the initial world tour, so to speak, <clears throat> I had the feeling also that when she stopped in certain countries that she was talking to them about policy. Uh, for example, she, she went into a lot of Arab countries and, and spoke to them. And, and I always believed that she was doing that to try to, to build a coalition that might help in the peace process. Yeah, John? I, I think, I mean, I, I think this is, I, I would call it a core Clintonian uh, sort of approach to the world, which is that you try to bring in partners and you try to find consensus. Uh, which means ideologues uh, and people with strong ideologies, not just ideologues, but, but people with strong ideologies are always disappointed by the result. And sometimes the consensus point is not the best thing to do, but I do believe that that's a strong motivator for her. There is a constant effort to network, to create partnerships, to create relationships with people, because business is done at the margins of those relationships. When you can get somebody to either believe that what you're asking them to do is in their interest, or that it's not so much out of their interest that they can, can help you along, you get a lot done. And I think she was very good at that. I think the Obama you know, White House people would tell you that she was very good at that uh, and that they liked sending her places uh, because they felt that she could get the job done. One, one really good example of this, and it's a small uptick in popular support for the U.S. over time, but the United States' re reputation when uh, Obama was elected in Pakistan was awful. I mean, single digits approval rating. One of the things she did was go and do town hall meetings in Pakistan. And she did meetings with journalists. And none of this seems like a big foreign policy effort. Uh, and, you know, did development, you know, put money into Pakistan. None of it seems like a big, you know, something that's going to have a big effect, except for it helped buy time for our intelligence agency, uh, agencies and our military 
to track down bin Laden and other terrorists and do the things that Pakistanis didn't like, such as drone strikes, such as the raid on bin Laden. Um, and, you know, I think that she had a very strong understanding of how uh, getting just a little bit more public support, just a little bit more support from the Pakistani leaders, a little bit more of an allowance from them on the diplomatic side, on the development <laughs> side, could create a little bit of extra space for our military. Congressman, now you had a question. Yeah, you can't get through this without bringing up Benghazi. And, uh, and what I've never been able to figure out from everything I've read and what have you is, is was she in some way personally aware and responsible for what happened there uh, as she has been accused of being? Or was she not? Because uh, it's a little hard for me to believe that uh, somebody that high up the decision-making ladder would be aware of all of those things at the, uh, at, at, at the time. What, what, what did you find out about that? So I think there are two ways to look at that. One is, um, and I think it's important to go back uh, to, uh, and this is something we revealed in the book for the first time. In 2010, there was an attack, this part is public, there was an attack on the U.S. consulate in Peshawar, Pakistan, uh, that was thwarted by a, a pop-up vehicle barrier. Basically, there was a van headed toward the embassy, it wasn't an embassy consulate, uh, and uh, it was full of explosives and a pop-up vehicle barrier outside uh, got it stuck. It got stuck on the thing and, and exploded. And, and you know, fortunately, it didn't ram through the, the front of the, the front of the consulate, right, and, and create uh, tremendous havoc and loss of life. Uh, and she, uh, when that happened, this is the part we reported for the first time. When that happened, and she found out we had thwarted the attack, she asked uh, Pat's, Pat uh, Kennedy, who was the undersecretary for management, to come to one of her senior staff meetings and show images of what had happened in this attack. She was acutely aware of how dangerous some of these outposts were uh, across the world that weren't heavily guarded by uh, military force. Um, and she wanted everybody in the State Department to understand, A, that these attacks could be thwarted, but B, that they were happening, or vice versa. Um, so I think she was keenly aware of how dangerous things were, and her approach to that uh, was one of supporting what's called expeditionary diplomacy, which means Putting our, diplomas, uh, putting our diplomats in dangerous areas because that's the way we believe, or she believes certainly, that uh, the United States can make friends around the world. It's better to do that than to be at the point of a gun. Um, the situation in Benghazi was deteriorating so badly that several embassies had pulled their people out of there. Um, Chris Stevens himself was aware of what was going on on the ground, the ambassador who, was at, who ended up being killed, uh, and, and went out there anyway. Um, he was somebody who strongly believed in this expeditionary diplomacy model. Uh, in fact, that's the reason that he was the ambassador there, is because he was somebody who wanted to be on the ground, meeting with people, trying to sell the United States, trying to form partnerships out there. Uh, and it was just getting a lot worse. Um, and obviously, uh, he didn't anticipate that he was going to be attacked that day, um, or, or he wouldn't have been out there. Um, but there was also a pressure from above uh, at the State Department to turn this consulate in Benghazi into a permanent facility. Uh, there was a desire to make Libya a success story. Hillary Clinton had helped put together the coalition internationally and in Washington to support taking out Gaddafi. And this was the aftermath. And the idea was you could build uh, a free society in Libya, uh, that, the, that all the fundamental pieces were there for that. Uh, and she really wanted to get that done. 
Um, and uh, Greg Hicks, who was the deputy chief of mission at the time, uh, testified that one of the reasons that Stevens was out there that day was that there was a, a desire on Secretary Clinton's part specifically to, uh, to assess whether they could make this a permanent consulate by the end of September. This happened on September 11th. Uh, September 30th is the end of the fiscal year, uh, and they were going to transfer some money to make it a, a permanent consulate if they could make that determination before September 30th. So there was a lot of pressure to move forward in terms of building a free society. Um, all of that said, the investigations have focused so much on whether security requests were denied. Uh, and the truth is there were requests for uh, more time for military security people to be in Tripoli, uh, to have greater numbers of military security people and even highly trained State Department people instead of outsourcing it to the Libyans or uh, you know, some, some lesser trained or you know, lesser high level uh, security people. But that was in Tripoli, which is hours west of Benghazi. And there's no indication that it would have made any difference if you'd had uh, you know, more high-level people in Tripoli at the time of the attack on the Benghazi conflict. They wouldn't have been able to get there to, uh, to thwart that first attack. Whether they would have been sent to try to help the CIA uh, uh, compound, which was the second installation that got attacked, uh, I think is an open question, but it seems unlikely because the United States didn't even want, even after the attack, didn't want to say that there was this CIA facility that was the twin of the, uh, you know, sort of the official compound. So it's interesting to me that the, the investigation has focused on that because it's an easy thing to focus on. Was there more security? Uh, none of those requests, to my knowledge, made it to her. Uh, they made it as high as Kennedy, the one that I talked to about before, the undersecretary for management. It's possible people in Clinton's personal office, although I haven't seen anything about this, uh, had gotten some awareness of requests for security, but there's no indication that it made it up to Hillary Clinton. Well, there is an indication <coughs> that she was aware of the general dangers of having people out there, that she wanted Libya to be a success story, and I don't, I don't think that that's separable or severable from the, the whole Benghazi story. I just think the investigations have focused on the wrong thing. Uh, oh, go ahead, Alan Moore. I'm sorry, that was a very long no, answer. No, that was, that was, and, and I appreciate that. very interesting. Appreciate yeah. that. I, 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 would, I, I don't know how long we have you, but I would love to, to get your thought on, now that you have, you know, you sort of know her as you do, um, what factors she will use to decide whether to run in 2016? Well, let's talk about that. We've got Jonathan for the show, so what we'll do so is let's, the whole time? Let's, let's take a close break. To well, close to it. Let's take a break real quick. Oh, when we come back, great. when we come back, sure. we're going to talk sure. about Hillary post-State Department, what her future looks like, and we're going to talk a little 2014-2016 politics with Jonathan Allen. He is the Chief White House Correspondent for Bloomberg Media and the author of HRC, State Secrets and the Rebirth of Hillary Clinton. This is Backroom Politics live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in four minutes. Stay with us. You know, here on Backroom Politics, you hear us order drinks uh, during happy hour, the second hour of Backroom Politics live on Blog Talk Radio. But what you don't understand is the quality of the drink that we're getting here at Shelley's Backroom. 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Backroom Politics premier sponsor. Hey, you got Dave Hammerly and the bar crew there at Shelly's Backroom that really know how to pour a drink. Whether it's something simple like 
my on-air Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water, or whether it's something elaborate like what has to be the best martini in the District of Columbia for Congressman Al Swift. Wine selection, scotch selection that will blow your mind. They've got Highland scotches. They've got Island Sky scotches, blended, single malt, anything you want. Port wines to go with that great cigar from the great humidor. Down here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Come on down, have a drink, and make some new friends. Or heck, just come on down and listen to Backroom Politics on Tuesdays. live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is Back Room Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. And uh, joining us for the next hour is the author of HRC, State Secrets, and the Rebirth of Hillary Clinton. He is the best-selling author and White House chief correspondent for Bloomberg Media. He is Jonathan Allen, along with Congressman Al, Bob Hines, Alan Moore, and Carl Tubin here around the table. Uh, we're going to continue our discussion about Hillary Clinton and, and, and John's book. Uh, but one of the things that we've talked about Benghazi, how much 
is Benghazi weighing on Hillary Clinton right now in making any decision for running for Congress, or is it a consideration, John? I think it's a consideration in terms of how do you deal with it. This is obviously something that is uh, going to be used uh, should she run, uh, certainly by Republicans. Remains to be seen if she's got a Democratic primary, if that becomes an issue. Um, I, I tend to think not, but you know, you never know. Um, is it enough to is it enough to kill her chances? I don't think so, unless more were to come out to implicate her, because this has been out there for quite a long time now. We haven't seen it really break out of being something that Republicans care about into something that independents and Democrats care about or see as a reason to not elect her. Whether that changes with tens of millions of dollars of advertising, I don't know. I can't foresee. We have already seen her go out recently and say that it's her biggest regret. Uh, I would be surprised if she hadn't, if she'd said something else was her biggest regret. Um, but it's, it's certainly something that weighed on her, um, you know, obviously not just when it happened, but weighed on her uh, personally long after it. Um, and, uh, you know, I, <laughs> I can only imagine what it feels like to be in charge of the department, uh, you know, whether you're the Defense Department and you know you're going to have soldiers dying at some point during your tenure or any other department and you see your, uh, you know, people under you die. Um, I can only imagine how difficult that is uh, on a personal level. Um, on a political level, uh, you know, the Republican National Committee created an ad in 2012 um, hitting Barack Obama for uh, not being ready for the 3 a.m. phone call. I don't know if you remember from the 2008 right. election, Hillary Clinton had hit Obama and said he's not going to be ready if a phone call comes at 3 a.m. on national security. So they, they cut this ad to use it against Obama, and the Romney people told him don't use it. Because the Romney people wanted to focus on the economy, the economy, the economy. They said, don't use it. Well, after the 2012 election, of course, we've had an election since Benghazi to right. prevent Barack Obama from winning. Um, the Republican National Committee repurposed it as an anti-Hillary Clinton ad. Ah. Uh, and the, the folks at the RNC say she can get used to seeing that ad a lot. Really? Um, so, you know, I think it's something that will be part of the conversation. I cannot imagine that that will be dispositive, if for no other reason, uh, and I think there are other reasons, but if for no other reason, then uh, Hillary Clinton is the kind of person who uh, doesn't back down from challenges. I mean, I think she looks at somebody criticizing her as a reason to come out fighting, not as a reason to back away. Well, let's talk, let's talk about her fighting. And sometimes to her, to her detriment. Right. I mean, right. often to her detriment, and sometimes in an ill-advised fashion. Sometimes she deserves the criticism she's getting. Well, one of the... One of the uh, one of the key revelations in your book, uh, HRC, is the fact that there was, in fact, a an enemies list that came out that you revealed in your book. Uh, how extensive was this enemies list? Because when we hear enemies list here in Washington, we immediately go back and think of Richard Milhouse Nixon and his time in the late seven or the early seventies in the White House. Is it that extensive? It's obviously, or is it maybe paranoia? Uh, Congressman Al's on it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Um, Congratulations. <laughs> you, 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 you've maintained your legacy, Al. It's a bumper sticker. Yeah, no kidding. I'm on the list. I, uh, My father-in-law would have a fit with me being tied in with Richard Nixon. <laughs> uh, so, I, you know, I think there are a couple of... Um, uh, a couple of ways to look at that. Uh, in terms of the expansiveness, I'm, I'm not sure. What, what we were able to find for the book is uh, that at the end of the 2008 primary, the people in her congressional uh, delegate counting office 
uh, sat down and put together a Microsoft Excel spreadsheet of all the Democratic members of Congress and uh, gave each of them a rating from one to seven. And the ones where the people were extremely loyal, stayed with her to the bitter end in the primary, uh, you know, went out to every event they were asked to, stayed on message, uh, all the way down to sevens who were the most disloyal. Oftentimes it wasn't people who went with Obama uh, so much as people who were neutral, uh, who they thought owed, and I say they, the Clintons thought owed allegiance. Um, sometimes Bill it was people, Richardson. Bill Richardson's a perfect example of the type of person that they felt owed them allegiance. He'd been uh, in the in the cabinet under Bill Clinton in two positions, I believe, right, uh, and at the UN and the Energy Department, and uh, and then he went out uh, in the middle of the primary and and, and you know endorsed Obama, right, uh, at a time when you know that that killer people might remember James Carville came out and called him Judas Iscariot, right, which is uh, you know not not the nicest language. And they, by the way, they talk in this language, right? You know, you're an enemy for this. Um, so I don't know how extensive it goes beyond the, the, the Democratic members, but I can only assume that it does. Uh, there were so many delegates outside of that congressional delegate counting office from the DNC, from other organizations, um, and so many other people that they come into contact with in politics. You know, Bill Richardson, for instance, is not a member of Congress at the time. I am sure that they have a special rating for him. He might be an eight or a nine. <laughs> um, but yeah, but I, do want to make, I do want to make a point about the Nixon enemies list and this enemies list. Um, about the difference, and I think this also gets to the Chris Christie issue too with Bridgegate, and I, you know who knows what he actually knew, but at least in terms of his aides operating in this way. Um, with Nixon, when you talked about enemies lists, it often went beyond political enemies and into the area where you're sort of targeting individual citizens for bad things rather than targeting other politicians to not give them your help when they ask or to try to knock them out of office. And the way that Clintons have used it, so far as I know, is in that way. When somebody calls up and says, I want Bill Clinton to come out and campaign for me, they're like, well, you were a seven. I mean, they don't say it that way, yeah. obviously, but they're, you were a seven, so you don't get a phone call back telling you we're not going to help you. Right. You can just keep calling for a while and we're not going to help. Um, and then, you know, for some of them, when there was an opportunity in the Democratic primary to weigh in uh, for someone who was opposing uh, a person that was disloyal to her, Bill Clinton did it. Uh, we have several examples in the book where he uh, methodically went after these people in the 2010 elections, 2012 elections. One of them, Patrick Murphy, was running for attorney general in Pennsylvania. Right. And Bill Clinton goes and endorses his uh, opponent in the, in the primary. Uh, you know, and the, the opponent was somebody who had been helpful to Hillary Clinton. Patrick Murphy had been knocked out of Congress already, and they continued to go after him. Uh, down to the level of this, the Pennsylvania Attorney General's race. So um, they take it very seriously. Um, it, it is significant in terms of uh, sending a message to other politicians. I think it's significant in terms of other Democrats when they start looking at who they want to line up for right. in 2016. And I think it's important. It's, it, it's, it tells you something if you're a voter about the way the operation exists, with the way the Clinton operation operates, if you right. will, uh, which is... You know, they were always reaching out. They were always trying to network. And uh, once you're in that network, you're not allowed to leave. Right. Or you can suffer serious consequences. And I think some of the people who they saw as disloyal felt like they had already given at the office. Howard Berman's a good example. was helpful to Bill Clinton on the Judiciary Committee during uh, the, the Monica Lewinsky scandal. Um, and, you know, had voted for NAFTA and done a lot of things for Bill Clinton over time. Ends up uh, endorsing Obama. And then Bill Clinton... Uh, endorses Berman's opponent in the primary in California many years later. I think somebody like Howard Berman probably looked at it and thought, you know, the score sheet's pretty much in my favor already. You know, I, I stayed at the office. You know. Bob Hines, question for John Allen. Do you have any uh, 
any doubt that the, uh, the former Secretary of State is going to be the nominee of the Democratic Party? I think if she runs, there's almost no chance that she's not the, Democrat, the nominee of the Democratic Party. I mean, I, I don't see a candidate that is competitive against her. What I do see is the entirety of the Democratic establishment lining up for her now, and there is not a divide in the Democratic Party like there is in the Republican Party right now where being establishment is bad. You see all millions of dollars pouring into these super PACs right now, ready for Hillary, uh, American Bridge, which runs this Correct the Record project, Hillary and, Pri and Priorities USA, uh, which was an Obama election vehicle in 2008, is now being run uh, by people who have committed to uh, backing Hillary Clinton. I don't see anybody being able to raise that kind of an organization or operation against her. I mean, Martin O'Malley, I mean, I, you know, I just don't, maybe, you know, Vice President Biden has run a couple of times and he'll have people who are supportive of him if he runs, but, you know, I don't see, I think the Democrats are hungry to keep control of the White House and they'll be hungry to try to solidify Obamacare. And I think a lot of them are disappointed that President Obama wasn't better at getting things done. Um, and I think that, that all of those things will be helpful to her within the Democratic Party. Alan, more questions? Yeah, I guess so. So I, I, I totally agree with you that if she decides to go, it, it's really hard to see somebody beating her. The question is... Not impossible. Will, just not impossible. Highly unlikely. The question is, will she decide to go? Will she decide to jump in? And I've been highly skeptical on that question myself, yeah. just because of the personal questions. Her age, her health, her husband's health. Her daughter, will she be a grandmother? Stuff that, that is increasingly important to a person over time. Is, is anybody at, a, at the table a parent? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. Would it be easier or harder to be a parent slash grandparent in the White House than it would be to be outside the White House? <laughs> I feel like that's a lot. I mean, I, I, I say that seriously. I, I do think it's easier to do things for your grandchildren if you're president of the United States. Yeah, I'm except not, give them time. Yeah, and, and it's and it's really the the, the time question. Pri people's priorities change. We you know we don't we don't know what her health or her husband's health will be like between now and we're still several years out. Health, and, health is the X so, factor. You know, is, is health is health in fact the X factor? I mean, well, she had she had a fainting spell at the House at one right. time. Uh, it's been it's been noted in several publications, particularly out of the Arkansas press that her health, she's not the young spring chicken that she once was in the White House and as a senator. Is, is age playing into her decision-making process, or is, does she think that, hey, look, I'm as young as I'm ever going to be? Yeah, uh, so, well, she is as young as she's ever going to be. Right. Uh, <laughs> aren't we all? I, look, I, I, I'm not her doctor. I did stay at the Holiday Inn Express last night. <laughs> Um, I, you know, I don't, I don't know what her health uh, situation is. I do know that we've had people run for the president of the United States who are her age or older, or the age that she will be. Older. Right. Uh, Ronald Reagan was the same age. Yeah. John McCain, I believe, older at the time. Um, and, but it showed on the campaign trail with John McCain. I mean, th this was difficult for him as a contrast with Barack Obama, who was very young. Young, vibrant, and, right. And even, you know, it's impossible to sub subtract the, the grievous uh, injuries that, that John McCain suffered um, as a, as as a prisoner, prisoner of war. war. Um, but but you know but even at that age there was a clear contrast regardless of that aspect which I think also made him appear to be a little uh, less firm uh, than he might have otherwise appeared. Um, I do think it's it's a question of voters' minds. They'll look at her and try to make a determination: Is this somebody who's got the ability to do this job mentally, physically, 
et cetera. What I will say is right now, as we speak, she is uh, out in California doing a, uh, an event for, you know, doing a paid speech, I believe, uh, certainly doing a speech. She's been doing speeches several times a week for the last several months. Her travel schedule would make most of us break down and cry. <laughs> I mean, I've been promoting the book, and I'm, I'm mostly on the East Coast, and I feel exhausted at the end of the day. Uh, so I think that if she continues to do that, she's going to have a book tour uh, after her book comes out in June or July, uh, which she's just campaigning. That's the other thing. She's right. campaigning not under the flag of a candidate, but just yeah. running around the country meeting people and saying things that are not particularly political, um, you know, which is any politician would love to be able to do that. Um, so <coughs> I think she's running right now, and the question is whether she stops, not, not whether she starts. Right. Carl Tubman? Just, just an aside, <clears throat> while watching the uh, championship game last night, there were pictures of two presidents, George W. and Bill Clinton, sitting next to one another. Both very <laughs> looked like a very somber mood, and I, I, it, it just hit me. Actually, actually, I, I actually thought that they looked very cozy together. I mean, I was surprised George W. Bush didn't do a selfie painting. For Samsung. My question was, did the subject come up about George and Hillary? <laughs> uh, about Jeb and Hillary, maybe, or Jeb? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, you know, who knows? Uh, I will say this: <laughs> you know, there, there's a lot of history between those two families, and it started off really badly, and it has gotten a lot better. Uh, yes. You know, there's, uh, you know, Bill. I think Bill Clinton likes to joke. Uh, I think all of them kind of like to joke about Bill Clinton being the, the brother that the, the you know, the extra brother of the Bush family, or, right? You know, the extra child of yeah. George H. W. The son that she wanted. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, you know, I don't know that that I, I would uh, not, never that, go to that yeah. to that place, but I do think, um, you know, there's some warmth there, and it's something that would be interesting that they ran together you know, to watch that play out because I think that makes it harder. For, it makes it. They're still able to go after each other on policy, but I think it makes it harder for Personally. them to do the personal stuff um, that has characterized our campaigns for so long. Right. So we might accidentally be the beneficiaries of a, a, a more high-minded presidential race so if it turned out. I, I said that last week on the program. Right. I said if, if they run against each other, we'll have we'll have um, debates that are really debates and not throwing stuff. Right. Them. Well, let's depending upon how it unfolds. Right, right, that, that's very true. Things, but things turn ugly when the numbers aren't working for you. But Jonathan, when, when we look at the relationships of families, we, we, we've all seen the close relationship between the Clintons and the Bushes. But the one family that has had the relationship strained with the Clintons is, in fact, the Kennedys. Uh, I don't know if you, I, I, I didn't catch that you talked about this in the book, but there was obviously a, a disconnect when Ted Kennedy, while he was still alive, then senator from Massachusetts, backed Barack Obama instead of backing Hillary Clinton for the nomination. Has that fence been mended, or is this still some tension between the Kennedy family and the Clinton family in Democratic politics? Um, I don't think that that's ever going to be repaired. Um, you know, again, here's a situation where the Clintons feel that they were owed loyalty in a way that might be grander than they really were of loyalty. Uh, you know, when Ted Kennedy was running for re-election in 1994, um, the, uh, he was running against a young man from Massachusetts named Mitt Romney. Right. And there was some thought that he might actually lose, and certainly he was very worried about it. There have been stories about him carousing in Washington. He gained weight. You know, I guess he had stopped drinking at that point, but, like, there have been some issues. Um, 
And, and the Clintons assigned one of their top White House political people to basically just pay attention to Ted Kennedy and get him anything he needed. And then both Clintons went up the campaign for Ted Kennedy. He even says in his autobiography, uh, True Compass, that, that you know, he remembers them coming up and it was a big deal and it was important for him. Um, and, you know, I think they've worked on a variety of things over the years, healthcare, or whatever, had come up judges um, when Bill Clinton was president. And I think they thought that he was going to be loyal to them for that. And, uh, you know, Ted Kennedy did not see it that way. Uh, and I think he, you know, look, if Hillary Clinton had become president of the United States and there had been a healthcare push, Ted Kennedy would have been squeezed out of that. He wouldn't have been the face of healthcare. But with Barack Obama as president, I mean, there's a, in addition to believing in Barack Obama, thinking he's the next great thing, there's also a personal interest, I think, for Kennedy in, in being the face of healthcare. As it turned out, he died, and it was not as he probably would have would have liked or envisioned. Um, but I, you know, I think there were a lot of things at play there. You know, Ted Kennedy courted Bill Clinton in 1980 uh, to try to come to his side in the Democratic primary against Jimmy Carter. Clinton was loyal to his fellow Southern Governor Carter. Um, you know, who knows what role that played in the way to. Ted Kennedy viewed presidential politics and loyalty, but certainly Bill Clinton was somebody that Ted Kennedy wanted on that side back then didn't get. All of these people have dealt with each other for so long, it's hard to unpack all of it. What is easy to unpack now is that there is no love lost between the Clintons and the remaining Kennedy. Now, when we think of... When with we, one exception, the youngest one that just got elected to the House. Ah. I can't remember his name. He's Joe Kennedy Joe, the third Joe, Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. so... There's been some warm interaction between Hillary Clinton and him in public at hearings. Okay. Because he was a classmate of Chelsea, Chelsea Clinton's at Stanford. Stanford. Right. So but, there may be... But what other Kennedys matter? Well, and maybe that's a good point. That, to yeah, that, that, that's, that's Congressman Al. I was going to ask. With, with, with Ted Kennedy out of the picture, I don't think the Kennedys have the clout or the, uh, uh, the handle on the public imagination that they held for years. And uh, and if this new young guy is, is different, JPK the third, it's going to take him a while to develop. You know, it's going to be ten years. Right. It's, it's hard to replace the last liberal lion, right, of that era, of the Kennedy era. And, right. and by the way, nobody, you know, I'm 38. Nobody my age has any connection to the Kennedy family like the like my parents' generation. Yeah. Does. Right. You know, there's just not. It's not the same. Yeah. It's not the same hole. Right. Well, I think the Kennedys uh, are not, are not going to be terribly important. Well, well that leads me about eight or ten years if he runs for the Senate and gets into the Possibly, Senate. Possibly. That's but, a different case. But that, sure. that, that brings up a good question, though, John, is, you know, many have looked at Bill Clinton in, in his past White House years as being a political rainmaker in the Democratic Party. There's no question he's still got a very high favorable rating. Uh, he's very he's very well respected both domestically and internationally. Some in <clears throat> some in Washington have speculated that Hillary might look at that, and that might be a key decision her not running. That she and Bill combined could be the new iteration for the Democrats of the modern day Kennedy Empire. That the Clintons will be what the Kennedys were in the '60s, '70s, and '80s. And Is there accuracy to that? If you grew up in the dirt in Arkansas. And you could see that place to think of yourself like that, like Joe Kennedy's kids. I mean, that's got to be a pretty compelling. Uh, I mean, these are these are people who have been cl climbing and crawling and clawing, and I don't mean that in a bad sense. I just mean these are people that are, are that literally you know, climbed out of poverty to get yeah, where well, they are today. Well, certainly Bill Clinton didn't. You're she right. didn't. She was suburban, whatever. But I mean, you know, you look at that. That's that's a pretty compelling. They talk about Chelsea Clinton in a way that is unhelpful to them in terms of. 
well, maybe she'll be president someday. The American public doesn't want to hear that, but they think about it that way. They're talking about it that way. Um, and so I do think that there's a, 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 you know, a sort of compulsion toward that dynasty. Does she see herself as a dynasty? Does she see herself as a political rainmaker in the Democratic Party? Hillary Clinton? Yes. Sure. I think she sees herself as a rainmaker. Uh, dynasty? I don't know. I don't think that's what drives her. Look, you, have have, you have to have a bunch of kids to have a dynasty. You have to have a whole big family. By any, by Chelsea's still young. Although they did <laughs> just marry into the uh, margolis Mazinski family. That's so. true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, I, but I do think that, you know, look, I can't claim to know what's in, uh, in, in Hillary, Hillary Clinton's head or heart or whatever, but I can't say this. At every opportunity that she's had to, like, grab the brass ring, she has. Right. You know, the, the, if, if past is prologue, this is something she wants. I think she's somebody who cares about and is more interested in public policy than in politics. You know, her husband's got this great natural charisma. And he's really good with policy. Very few people that are good at both of those things. She is much more a wonkish, nerdy, let's sit down and go through the briefing book and study and learn and be a student than, A, I'm going to go out there and express a grand vision for the world uh, and draw people into my vision for the world. She just doesn't have that. I mean, see her at a podium. It's not the same thing. She suffers for the comparison to her husband, she, but she would suffer with that comparison against uh, most modern presidents that I can think of. She, Bush was better at it. Obama was better at it. Reagan was certainly better at it. I think H.W. was not particularly good with that big mass charisma stuff. Uh, certainly, you know, Ford wasn't great at it. Carter was pretty good at it uh, as a candidate. Um, I, I think in order to be elected, she's going to have to overwhelm people with the force of her organization. And I think she's going to have to learn something about articulating a vision from her husband or and, from somebody else. And get lucky on who her opponent is. Right. Yeah. That's true, too. Carl Tubin. Uh, one thing. When I, I've uh, represented Vietnam veterans of America, and when she went to the Senate, uh, we had a president elected from New York. So they, we went in to see her. We had, I had dropped off our legislative agenda the night before. When we got there... She looked, she looked and said, now on page five, and she turned to page five, and you could see the underline. She had gone through the whole booklet and knew exactly what she wanted to, to, to say and questions that she had for us. And it was interesting because at one point John Rowan says, is there anything else you want to know? <laughs> I mean, it, was, it, was, it was a great her, her staffers express amazement and fear. You know, they'll prepare these huge briefing books for her. She'll go home at night and she'll read them and she'll come into the meeting. And normally when you brief a principal as a staffer, you basically tell them what's in the briefing book because you know that they didn't read it or they skimmed it. And in her case, she's read the whole thing and, and she, she does secondary and tertiary questions. If they're not ready for her, she's disgusted and they can tell. Um, and it's a very, especially for people who have worked for other politicians coming into it, you know, they, the first time they meet with her is an awakening. Or, uh, you know, sometimes a rude awakening. Um, and, you know, she does study the stuff. But she's a Wellesley girl. You know, and they, they, that's what they do. They take notes and they study, and she does it better than most. That said, there's that, that student part that she's really good at learning the material. And the question is, can, is she, does she have vision? Does she have the ability to, um, does she have the ability to, to innovate? And, uh, you know, I haven't seen that. And when I talk to people that are around her, they say she's really good at applying other people's ideas or ideas from one situation to another, but not necessarily uh, being the innovator in the room. Now, maybe you can just surround yourself with people who do that and be good at picking them.
but uh, but I think that's a, a remaining question. Well, we're we're gonna I want to switch gears a little bit here, real quick, uh, and, and and talk about Jonathan the fact that you now cover the White House for both Politico and for Bloomberg. Uh, you were also the chief congressional uh, correspondent for Politico during your journalistic career here in Washington. Uh, switching gears a little bit, we've talked a lot on the show about the dysfunctionality inside Congress. Uh, and we always love getting outside opinions on what they've seen in their time in Congress. In, in, the, in the years that you've covered both Congress and the White House, it seems to us that the White House and the relationship with the Hill hasn't been there, and it doesn't seem that they're getting the message on either side. Is there accuracy to that? Am I allowed to use profanity? Oh, uh, it's, a family, it's a family show. They do from time to but time. Yeah, Bobby. Bob dropped the F-bomb. And we've censored it since. It's an unholy freaking mess. It is. Uh, and, and, Freaking's a good word. Freaking's yeah. a good word. Um, you know, Very descriptive. When I came to, to start reporting in Washington around 2000, uh, people bemoaned how things had gotten terrible and they were dysfunctional. And we did, we, we, I watched laws pass Congress, big laws, big controversial laws, big laws that split the parties or had splits within the parties. You saw transportation bills, appropriations bills, farm, the, bills. The farm bills, the Medicare prescription drug law, uh, the Bush tax cuts in 2001. Uh, there was still an ability for Congress to function uh, both in times of division in Congress and in times uh, where one party controlled Congress. And uh, it's gone. It's completely gone. I think that um, there are a lot of reasons for that. Um, is it, let, me just, let me just interrupt real quick. Is it a matter of that this administration doesn't get it or that the Hill just doesn't want them to get it? This administration is worse than the last one at it, which was worse than the previous one, uh, which was probably worse than the previous one. And You know, it's been sort of a sliding scale to the point now where the president's Advisors say, well, we're not going to deal with Congress. We're going to use the pen and the phone. <clears throat> this from a president who didn't like signing statements uh, as a candidate. Right. Um, we're talking about a president who basically ignored the War Powers Act in Libya and uh, continuing to have, uh, have, you know, what they call kinetic military action going on in there, uh, basically continuing to bomb Libya, continuing to have some people who were, uh, you know, armed on the ground in Libya, uh, even though we didn't have troops, so to speak. Um, I think uh, they feel like there's no choice. I think this president was particularly bad at reaching out and trying to make relationships in the first place. I think he's not of Washington, and that, that has been problematic for him. Uh, you know, we keep having presidential candidates who run against Washington, D.C. I'm an outsider. I'm an outsider. I'll, bring, I'm, I'll go in there and knock some sense into them. You know, we, you guys were talking before about Lyndon Johnson. Why was he able to get the Civil Rights Act done? Not just 1964 and 1965, with the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Act as president, but if you go back to 1957, the Senate Majority Leader was able to get a watered-down civil rights bill through the uh, subject of an entire Robert Carroll book of a thousand pages or so. It's, there needs to be some change at some point. I don't think bashing Washington, which they all do, not just the presidential candidates, but the members of Congress themselves, uh, for political gain, uh, that's not helping. Right. Um, I don't know what the entire solution is. I have some ideas, though. Congressman Al. I, I, I think the problem is that most of them believe it. Ronald Reagan didn't. He ran against Washington, D.C. and came in and hired every bright, capable 
experienced Republican in this city and had a first term until he brought in a, some dodo from New York, uh, Regan. Uh, he, he, he was flawless. He was absolutely flawless. Even Richard Nixon couldn't do that. He brought in people who hated the city and, uh, and so forth, and, and he paid for it. But Ronald Reagan uh, didn't do it. And we, they should start with being the solution instead of the problem. It was, people that get elected, they should start with trying to make it work better rather than bashing it for political. Well, yeah, that was, was going to be my question to you. Is in, in the time that you've been here since 2000, have you seen the fact that We've gotten so far away from trying to, uh, instead of trying to fix Washington, which everybody promotes, we're going to come here and fix Washington, Washington's been operating for over 250 years. The reality is, is that it's now a matter of trying to fix how business is done in Washington, or is it a matter of these outsiders are coming in with ideals that once they get here, they're overwhelmed with the reality of, you're trying to break down an entire legacy of government. They're, the problem is that they're overwhelmed uh, not by the realities of what they find in Washington, but they're overwhelmed by the reality of their own rhetoric and trying to stay true to it and being so focused, so 100% focused on uh, the constituency, not just in the general election in their districts, but in the primaries in their districts. And they're forced to do that, certainly by a variety of factors. Redistricting is something that I think plays into this heavily. but Basically, they make promises, they come here, the people that have elected them expect them to hold to their promises, to the word of their promises, and what they find is it's hard to pass laws and remain uh, you know, ideologically pure. What we've seen over the course of the time I've been here, uh, you know, and I actually grew up here, so it's a little longer than just <laughs> working here, but uh, you know, what I've seen in that time is uh, a move toward ideological purity in both parties that makes it very difficult to get things done. I think that elimination of earmarks is one of the things that has made it more difficult to get things done. Uh, I'm, I'm not make, taking a position on whether it's the right thing or the wrong thing, but I do think it makes it harder to get bills passed. I think being able to give somebody something that they can go home and share their constituents that, that they got in order to pass a bill that's mostly good instead of perfectly good is somewhat helpful. Congressman, now last word. In my 16 years in Congress, I never heard the word earmark. I remember needing desperately a redone intersection in my district. Badly needed because a, one whole community was basically couldn't get to work because of the traffic jam. I went before the Appropriations Committee and made a presentation, and I didn't get it. The next year, I brought in the state uh, director of transportation, who happened to be a Republican, and, and he said how important this was, and we got it. We got it filled. I never thought of that as an earmark. Uh, it, 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 it came out of the... Uh, appropriations Committee, as you will do this, which I guess makes it an earmark. But business was always done that way. Sometimes you got what you wanted, sometimes you had to try three or four times. It was not just a case, as in the Tom DeLay era, where you were trading these earmarks for your votes. And, and so that's what's 
it got mis mislabeled and misinterpreted to the American public. Misappropriated. I do think that they needed to fix the system so that people could get things done in their districts, uh, in their states, and not have it be a straight payoff right. uh, for their yeah. vote, and not be a machine where all the members spent most of their time trying to get a few hundred thousand dollar projects for here and there instead of focusing on legislating on a broader level and overseeing on a broader level. Absolutely. Well, we're going to let that be the last word on this. When we come back, we're going to change tracks again. We're going to talk about the Senate. Who, uh, Senate Intelligence Committee, who voted last week to release and declassify the CIA's uh, interrogation reports and make them public. Is America really ready to see what's in these reports? We'll talk about that when we come back. This is Backroom Politics on Blog Talk Radio Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. You know, you hear us talk about Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. It's being the place to be. America's premier cigar tavern, place to make new friends or visit old friends, or even have a lively political discussion like we do here on Backroom Politics. But what you may not know, Shelley's is the place for private parties. Shelley's Back Room is available to host events for groups of 10 to 250. From cocktail receptions to sit-down dinners, Shelley's can provide custom menu options to suit your needs and budget. Although Shelley's is a smoke-friendly environment, Shelley's can make accommodations for non-smokers based on the side of your party, but heck, why would you want to? With a cigar menu like they have here, why would you even consider going smoke-free? Event pricing varies based on the time of the day of the week chosen for your event. For more information on private parties at Shelley's Back Room, go to www.shelleysbackroom.com slash private dash party. Shelley's Back Room, the place to be, as Bob likes to say it. It's also a place for private parties. about the use of interrogation techniques in the field post 9-11. This is an effort that was uh, pretty much brought forward by Senator Dianne Feinstein out of California, uh, the committee's chairwoman. Uh, She said in a statement last Thursday when the vote happened, quote, the report exposes brutal brutality that stands in stark contrast to our values as a nation. 
It chronicles a stain on our history that must never again be allowed to happen, unquote. This brings up a big question, and Jonathan Allen, I want to start with you. You've been covering the White House and Congress throughout the post-9-11 era. Uh, the question comes up is, if we have a Senate Intelligence Committee that wants to declassify and make public this interrogation report, are Americans ready to see what's inside? I mean, the whole concept of democracy is, rests upon the idea that the public should have as much information as possible to make educated choices. And, that, you know, look, somebody smarter than me will make the decision about how much of it, uh, somebody who's better educated about the sources and methods and what actually compromises our ability to do national security, somebody will make that decision. But I think, uh, generally speaking, we largely way over-classify information. Um, of course, I've come at this as a, from the view of a reporter, so I'm somebody who believes in putting a lot of information. You want to be transparent. Like, generally speaking, believe in transparency, but not you know not at the at a real cost to national security. It's a tough question. What I do know is that a lot of the American public, not a majority per se, but enough of the American public, has lost faith in uh, what our leaders are doing uh, under the guise of national security. That there needs to be. Um, there needs to be a serious addressing of that, and some of that will require more information for the public to make informed judgments about who we're electing and what they're willing to do. Congressman Al. I agree with that, but I, but I'd go a little farther. I think the American public has been for some time very cynical about things like that. When I was in Congress, I assumed that the FBI was tapping my phone in my office. That's because you're paranoid. No. <laughs> Did you know J. Edgar Hoover? Because that might make you feel I grew, up in the, I grew up in the J. Edgar Hoover era. And, 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 and I didn't even know that these other intelligence agencies existed. You know, so I picked on the FBI. It may not have been the FBI. It may be somebody else. It may have been nobody. Certainly, I never had any indication that it was, in fact, happening. But I just, I just treated it as though that was the case. I think when a lot of this comes out, there will be a lot of hoorah and what have you, but I think average Joe Blow will say, yeah, they've been doing that all along. But, 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 Bob, but Bob Hines, you know, when we look at the intelligence that we gathered, I mean, there are some that argue inside the intelligence committee, talk to several friends of mine who, who exist in that community, who say that, look, you know, the techniques that we use got us great intelligence. One could go back to the book and the movie, Zero Dark Thirty, waterboarding and other techniques of interrogation were critical in getting the, uh, the blueprint to find Osama bin Laden. Some say in the community that the techniques that we use are in fact critical in stopping events like a, a Benghazi, a, uh, a Pakistan, or even a Times Square or an attack here in D.C. Well, you know, I don't. You know, obviously, I'm like everybody else. I don't know what are in, in what we're going to see, and I would suspect that probably there will be some things that were are so sensitive that we might want to hold them back. But I think, that by and large, it is probably very good that the public understands what's going on. I don't know exactly what I'm what I mean by that because I'm not very smart at all this intelligence stuff, but I do believe that it's fundamentally important that the public understands that there are uh, there is a lot of security uh, apparatus out there that is 
taking a lot of information down. And it may well be that some has to be held back, but fundamentally, I think it's a good idea that it is available. Alan Moore. Yeah, let's remember what's going on here, because this, this is there's a host of problems associated with, with this. The, the Senate Intelligence Committee has had a history of working really well, really closely together. The members, Republicans and Democrats, their staffs, um, who aren't particularly political, they're all, they're all people with high-level classifications, work together. And, 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 and a year or so ago, or maybe two, uh, as this study was being put, to, being, being put together, um, the, the Republicans concluded that, that they didn't like what they considered to be a one-sided investigation. That was unprecedented. I'm not saying it was one-sided. I'm saying that there was a basis that... that well, ra ranking, members, ranking member Saxby Chandler says it was all Democrats. Well, so, so, so they pulled out of that analysis. Now, what, what, what's happened since then, there's a 16,000 page report and a 600 page executive summary. 481 pages. Is, okay, fine. 481 pages. Pretty, you know, not exactly your most user friendly executive summary. Hillary Clinton may be the executive that, that reads that. <laughs> so I wonder if there's a summary of the executive summary, which, will, which these reporters will provide for us when something comes out. So that the committee will vote, and, and Chambliss and a couple of Republicans said, sure, we don't want to be accused of sitting on this thing. We have disagreements with it. We have some, some dissenting views that we also want to be released. They vote to release. Then it goes to the White House, who decides what needs to be redacted. And that puts the burden back on the White House to decide on sources and methods questions, on if there's a particular horror story that we think might be used in a way, or photos, I don't know if there's even photos of the thing, that could be used in a way that would put our own people at harm. There's a lot to be considered here, and, uh, and, and, and so we're a good long way from actually having this stuff just put out there. Yeah. Uh, but the second thing that, that's worth remembering is that, that in 2001, after 9-11, we thought we were under attack. We knew we'd been under attack. It was a different time and a different place, and we gave permission for a whole host of civil liberty, civil liberties under our law to be sort of waved, nudged aside. Uh, uh, there, there, there was a lot of activity that followed. Some of it we're embarrassed about, and there's an argument that we will not have answered, which is, did we ever learn anything useful from this? It is, in my judgment, there will never be a black or white answer. No, never, uh, all the time. It'll be some gray area, and people will disagree, um, but we'll, we'll, this stuff will get out. We've actually, it's probably hard to imagine doing more damage than all those photos from Abu Ghraib and so on, but, but God forbid that we, that we put more stuff out that puts more Americans at harm's way. And that's why it's now back to the White House. I've said that the American public is not going to be particularly uh, astonished, amazed, or, or panicked with this coming out. Let me make a, a, a provision in that. Except where it shows that the government has been watching them, the public. I think that is, is And I don't problem. think that's even in this. I, this is all about the, 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 the questioning methods and techniques 
and what led to it and so on. Congressman Allen? I agree with that, but I, but I wanted to, to modify my earlier statement because I think if, if, if the Joe Blow thinks that the NSA is looking at his phone calls, he will be upset. The fact that we are doing all these other things to other people, I don't think is going to bother them but, at but, all. But John Allen, you know, when we look at Saxby Chandless, along with former CIA directors that are coming forward saying, look, nothing good comes of this. This is a waste of time that all we're doing is just airing dirty laundry that doesn't need to be out there. Is there some, is, is there some legitimacy to that statement that this is, in fact, just going to show a national security issue that's been blown out? It's hard to know because they can't tell us. And what we've seen uh, already is that they, do, they have to kill us. Right, what we've already <laughs> seen is accusations that members of the national security uh, apparatus have uh, said things in front of Congress that aren't true. Uh, you know, and that's um, you know that's that's troubling in and of itself. Um, it's hard to know. It's hard to know. Uh, you know, if you're <laughs> if you're uh, a prosecutor or you're you're an agent, uh, you know, under a warrant to go into somebody's house, you knock on the door. That person, if they got contraband in the house or they don't have contraband in the house, they're probably not going to want to let you into their house without that warrant. Right. You know, um, so to have people in the national security realm, having CIA directors, former CIA directors saying we don't need to see this stuff, nothing to see here, it's hard, it's hard to take it on its face. Uh, in part because of the revelations that we've had that the United States is doing things that the administration, this administration, past administrations, have said we aren't doing. Correct. Um, and so that it becomes hard to, to uh, you know, I think, as I said before, that a significant portion of the American public, not a majority, because most people uh, don't, you know, don't worry about this stuff on a daily basis or to the extent that they do, they think it's all right that all this spying is going on. But a significant portion of the American public has lost faith uh, and is upset with the level of what they're seeing. And it, it, for the government to have the faith of all of the people, or almost all of the people is important, and to do that, they're going to have to show a little more leg. Carl Tubin. I hate to say this, but I think the people who will really be interested in this is Hollywood. They're going to tear this apart, and they're going to say, well, this would, this would be a good plot, this would be a good plot, and we might have movies. That's a good five point. Years, Very good point. doing all this. Yeah, they already, but they, they already do that. I mean, you know, Hollywood, I feel like, is ahead of probably ahead of the curve in a lot of cases. And we have entire agencies, DARPA, for instance. Uh, I forget what, it's, what the actual name of it is, but it's like basically the Defense Department's dark arts agency. Right. right? Like how do we come up with newfangled things to, to get done what we need? Um, and, and in a lot of cases, those are good things, but you know, tools that are used for good can also be used for bad purposes. Um, and, and, you know, I, I can tell you there are a lot of gun owners that would take that. Too. A tool that can be used for good purposes can also be used for bad purposes, and, and the ones used for bad purposes for good purposes. Right. But, Alan Moore, you know, when we, when we do talk about this, I mean, there are some CIA directors that do have a lot of credibility with the general public, i.e., uh, Leon Panetta, who is very well-respected, in, in the general community, outside the intelligence communities, <clears throat> you know, when, when we hear, do we really want to see a black stain on somebody like uh, Leon Panetta going forward saying he knew about this, he authorized this, and oh, by the way, maybe or maybe not, good intelligence came out of it? Well, if, if Gates lied to the American people, I'd like to know that. Uh, if, if Panetta lied to the American people, I'd like to know that. I'm not convinced that they have. Having said that, I think those I, I do listen to those guys when they say, 
if you divulge this particular information, you will put Americans at risk overseas. Um, I think that's a relevant issue in deciding what to redact. And believe me, that'll be a big piece of what the, the, the poor White House, who will be faced with having to decide what to release and what not, uh, uh, comes out. I think, you know, the public, they, they can live with it. I mean, I agree with Al. I think the public gets much more concerned if they think somebody's spying on them, that if they think we're spying on folks outside the country, a, l a little torture here and there um, <laughs> probably helps. Who knows? Uh, that's certainly the narrative you get from many years of 24 and then uh, Zero Dark Thirty and a bunch of other stuff. And I think there's a, it's kind of natural to, to, to be open to the possibility that some torture uh, from time to time works. Now, the problem is if it only works from time to time, so you get bad information some of the time and good information the other, how the heck do you know the difference? Congressman Al. And, and it occurs to me that the name Gates, the name Panetta, are respected. Rumsfeld? Less. Not so much. And I think that, it, that, that the public watched Gates sometimes run upstream and run against the grain, is a better term, and Panetta both have done things that were a little surprising given what their position was. Whereas uh, Rumsfeld was so rigid, so strong, so down the line, I'm right, you're wrong, kind of thing. Where, where does the public find any confidence in that? Well, Bob Hines, when, when we hear when we hear Diane Feinstein talk about the stain in history that this should never be allowed to happen again, is this a matter of after action report or change in policy, or is this a democratic ploy to show bad Republican policy? Well, I don't think it's all. It's going to be all Democratic. But the fact of the matter is, I think it's important that what can be released without damaging national security, and that has to be made at a high, very high decision. And Ellen is right; it's going to be the White House. I think we should put it out. I think it's important that the public knows what has been going on. John Van Allen, justify it. Justify it. You made the decision and it's politically unpopular or doesn't sit well with the American people, make the case for it. You know, one of the things the Obama administration dragged its heels on for a long time was making a case for some of the policies that the public doesn't like or that some of the public doesn't like, including, uh, in particular, the drone strikes and right. some of the other things. And then eventually, after a while, they started making speeches about what they weren't going to do. Um, they started to lay out kind of a framework, and I think that that worked better. You don't have to tell me, uh, you know, which which CIA, who the CIA station chief is uh, in Pakistan, but but just tell me what's inbounds and what's out of bounds, by and large. Congressman Al? Yeah, I was just saying. I, I wish we had we had the good senator from California here and asked her when you say this mustn't happen again. What mustn't happen again? You mean we shouldn't do any any anything we shouldn't do any intelligence i'm sure that's not what she means and let me let me jump in on her too yeah oh, sorry. Uh, just go ahead not just her the democrats in general on these intelligence committees i think they're and jay rockefeller has expressed this in the past regret not having blown a whistle earlier 
I mean, they're feeling guilty about not having said something. And to some extent, they may be trying to exonerate themselves. And I think there should be some concern about that. To what extent are, uh, are people who let this happen uh, and it didn't let some of these things happen, and you make a great point, what mustn't happen again? What are the things that we're talking about? But there's clearly some uh, desire to go back in history and, and exonerate and to make up for uh, the things that they felt they had done wrong in the past. And we should try to separate that from, you know, try to separate the desire to put things out there because you feel bad versus put things out there for uh, the necessary uh, knowledge of the American public. I, I, I completely agree exactly with that. Exactly where we ought to be. But to refine a little bit about what we, I was talking about uh, Senator Feinstein, you know, I, I think her broad statement stands reasonably. Now, what specifically is it you think, you know, because I, I can't believe that she is against all security uh, investigations and, and that all that kind of stuff. Carl Tubin. The interesting thing will be after the Snowden situation in which NSA said they put a lot of Americans at risk throughout the world. <clears throat> what will come out of this? I mean, the White House is able to get this and say, well, we can't do this. We, I mean, most of it is not to be released to the public because they'll be afraid. The excuse will be it's going to hurt our personnel throughout the world. Well, we, I mean, that's always going to be a fight that any time we do this. I mean, any time you try and declassify anything, there's always going to be an argument is one man's, you know, open source transparency is another man's violation of the National Security Act. I mean, that's going to be a fine line that we're going to play with. I think we can all agree that, uh, that you know, what Snowden did uh, is not the way that we want this information coming out as a, as, uh, as a country. You know, to not have any control over it, to not have any uh, ability to, uh, to figure out what's what's right to be in the public domain and what actually causes a national security problem. Um, that said, it's also, we've also gotten this trove of information about what our leaders are doing that has raised serious and legitimate questions. And I think, you know, the administration, whether it's this administration or any other administration, just owes the public an explanation for what it's doing that allows people to make informed choices. Because we live in a democracy, and we should be able to make good, good choices about who we're elected and what they'll and, do, what their right. values are, what their priorities are. Bob? And we can't make those decisions unless we know, to the extent that it does not damage national security, we know what's going on. Right. Harry. Well, I want to let that be the last word. Uh, real quickly, Jonathan Allen, one last question for you. You know, you, you've, been, you've covered Congress. Now you're covering the White House as chief correspondent for Bloomberg. You know, one of the things, I know when I go work the Hill, I still get a little giddy, still kind of like, wow, I can't believe I'm here. Do you still get the same excitement every day walking into work? Every freaking time. Really? How do you not walk into the Capitol building, walk into the White House, and not feel uh, a deep sense of uh, awe, a uh, deep sense of awe at, at what this country is, what it can be, what it should be, and where it's failing? And you should see when you look at those buildings, all of those things should come to mind. And the day that it's not exhilarating, the day that it doesn't really spark some emotion, go do something else. That's when you become an entertainment reporter for Variety. <laughs> and actually, you know, while we're advertising for positions, uh, I would love to cover the Nationals for the Washington Post. <laughs> Jonathan Allen, he is the author of HRC, uh, State Secrets and the Rebirth of Hillary Clinton, best-selling author on the New York Times bestseller list. 
and Chief White House Correspondent for uh, Bloomberg Media. John, it has been great. This has been a great show. Thanks for joining us on this show. Uh, but on behalf of Congressman Al Swift, Bob Hines, Alan Moore, Carl Tubin, our producer up in Syracuse, Brent Sullivan. Brent, uh, still needs you down here, bro. Uh, this has been Backroom Politics, the best political radio show you've never heard of. Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital. Bob? Aren't you, though, aren't you guys who are listening out there happy about this? This was a good show today. Not, not, Again, you screwed me up, dude. Who the hell? Al did a better job last week. Al. This is the place to be. Yes, thank you, Al. That's right. Remember, you can follow us on our website, www.backroompolitics.org. You can follow us on Twitter, at Backroom Politics, or you can email me for suggestions, comments, and just general thoughts. Justin at BackroomPolitics.org. I am your moderator, Justin Russell, here on the radio for you. We'll be back next Tuesday to talk all things politics here from Shelley's. Have a great week, everybody. Bye-bye. Justin also takes pictures. I do take pictures.